Hi there. Happy Father's Day. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my name's R.D. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to wish you all a happy Father's Day, obviously, especially the dads uh, out there. I brought a picture of uh, my girls from earlier this week where they were getting um, milk drunk at Chick-fil-A. Yeah. So there's Camille putting the shots back, and uh, Maisie just said, no more. I can't. I can't keep up with you, sister. It's, you're too... You're too much, too much woman for me. So she was just, and that's, that's kind of, you know, they can actually flip back and forth between them. So one of them can be, yeah. So that, um, that sometimes is really, it's even can just signify our week, right? Some of us, great week, awesome week, loving it, more like Camille. And, you know, some of us, maybe we just had a hard week, we're really tired, exhausted. And uh, the great, great news is, is that we get to talk about Jesus. And whether you had a great week, he's better. And he's the reason, and if you had a really hard week, difficult week, then um, he's still good. And uh, so especially the dads out, out there, um, if, if God allows you to be, a, to be a dad for serving, for loving, for changing diapers, for being there, for um, just everything, um, God's working through you. God's working through you. So thanks from me to you as a fellow, as a fellow dad in the trenches, just trying to find our way through. And uh, thankfully, we have a, the ultimate father, um, God himself, who loves us not because of anything we've done, but because he loves us. And because he's made us um, his kids, we know that we'll always be his kids. And that's a happy Father's Day for everyone, everyone here if you're in Christ. <clears throat> so with, with that um, Father's Day goodness out of the way, if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. You can also turn there in your phone. Or if you haven't memorized, then you need neither one of those things. So good for you. You get a gold star. <laughs> uh, Colossians chapter 2 is where we'll be uh, today. And uh, as you turn there, as you get there, uh, I want to tell you a story about when I was in 11th grade, when I was in high school, and I was dating a girl, and uh, my parents weren't the biggest fans of her. High school kids, can you relate, right? And I probably shouldn't have been dating her. Parents, you can relate. And so there's the tension of both those worlds. And because of that reality, I always wanted to be on time for curfew. Because I knew if I was late for curfew, it would just be another, another layer of, you know, my parents being like, we told you you shouldn't be with her, you know? And I'm like, she's the one, you know? You're 17, you have no idea. But, <laughs> um, and so I was dropping her off at like 9.58 <clears throat> p.m. And our house was probably five minutes away. And uh, the, uh, so I, curfew was 10, and so I'm going to be late. And so I'm thinking, oh, no. And so I knew that on the, the car that the uh, fuel gauge light was on. So that it's almost empty, right? So, so you know, you're thinking, I know where this is going. And you do. You do. So I thought I should stop at a gas station. But in my mind, 16, 17 years old, you know, my dad had said, RD, it's going to happen. It's going to catch up to you. Like, you're not as smart as you think you are. Like the gas gauge, really, it does empty. It does go on empty. It's not just like a, the light is not just a suggestion. Like at some point in the next year, you should get the, and I thought, oh, dad, I am, please. I, I would never. And so I didn't want to stop at a gas station because I wanted to get home as late, you know, not as late as possible. And so halfway, halfway down the road, I'm going as fast as I can, and the car just runs out of gas, just gone. And I'm thinking, there's so many things wrong with this right now. I'm in so much trouble. Plus, I'm just embarrassed that my car is stalled in the middle of my town. And so I push the car over the side of the road, put it in neutral, and I, I have to run home. 
I have to run home about a mile through the forest, through the woods. And so I get cut, I get scraped, you know, I'm bleeding. Basically. I, look like a, I look like a war veteran showing up at home or something, like coming back from the front lines. And my, I'm like, okay, what should I even tell my parents? Cause, you know, I can't tell them I ran out of gas. How embarrassing would that be? And so I, I get home, I, my parents are in the living room as I always are when I come home from a date. And I just open the door and I'm, I'm panting, I'm breathing really heavy. And they're like, what happened to you? Are you okay? You know, I can tell they're emotional. They're emotionally vulnerable. And so I think I have them. I have them in my hand. I could say, <laughs> I could say anything right now, right? I rescued a dying cat. That's why I'm late. And the car just, I don't even know where that is. You know, I could have said anything at that time. But I just looked at my parents and I thought, what can I really say? They're going to have to find the car at some point, And then it's going to be even more exposed. And so I was like, mom, dad, I, the car ran out of gas. <laughs> And it's on the side of the road, about a mile from here. My dad just started, just started laughing at me. He was like, <laughs> it's like, I told you, son, I love you, but I told you. And I was just, you know, what could I say? I was like, I, I got nothing. I am, I am so ashamed. Like, and so we had to go get the gas can, fill it up with gas, you know, all this stuff. And I had to drive the car home behind my parents. And it was just so embarrassing, right? And I was like, I just, in my mind, I was like, I know I should fill up, but I just didn't. And, you know, thankfully since then, I have never gone out of gas again. So thank you, everyone, for clapping for that. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. Common adult behavior, but to me, I need to just slap myself on the back because it's, it's good. <sighs> All right, that wasn't just a funny story. Why did, I why did I tell you that? Why did I tell you that story? Because, because, because. It's kind of what we're talking about today. That every one of us has a, really, a fuel tank and it's called our heart. And the Bible says at different times in your life, the light's always gonna go off. And the question is, what are you gonna fill it with when it does? When things are going rough, when things are happening, even when things are good, there are gonna be times in your life when your heart just says the light's on, and it's a warning light. Things aren't maybe fully empty yet, things haven't blown up yet, things aren't destroyed yet, but a light's gonna come on, and in that moment, where are you gonna be refueled? Where are you gonna go from empty to full? And Paul's saying to the Colossians here in chapter 2, Jesus Christ is your fullness. Don't look towards anyone else or anything else to be filled except for being filled in him. Because as we said before, there's some teachers who come in the church who are saying yes to Jesus, yes to grace, but that can only get your tank halfway. You've also got to do religion. You've also got to follow these rules, obey these laws, eat food this way, worship this way, do everything this way. And that's going to make you truly filled and truly full. And they're saying this, and Paul is saying no. Don't be deceived by these teachers. Only in Christ is the fullness you seek can it be found. And that's what Paul is going to say here in verses 2 through 4 and then verse 8 of chapter, chapter 2. He's writing here to two churches, both the church in Colossae and in Laodicea at this part right here. And he says to them in verse 2, he says, My goal is that they, the churches, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And then in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And so Paul says, really what I just said, that you've been made full in Christ, in Jesus Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge you could ever want, but that doesn't mean you won't be lured away from him. It doesn't mean you may not be deceived or tempted to run towards other things to fill you up, right? And we can all relate to this. Even if you're a Christian, sometimes you can look to someone else or to your job 
job or to anything else and say, that really, that really is what I'm living for. That really is my, is my God, even if we wouldn't say it. And Paul says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Literally, the word there, he's talking about do not be kidnapped by other forces and serve them because only one person can fill you up. And the specific issue here in Colossae, we'll just use the word religion. And what I mean by religion specifically is that your worldview is built on you please God by your obedience, by your rule keeping, by your law keeping. And so religion is adding anything to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He's not fully sufficient. You've got to add to it. As I've said before now, whenever you add to Jesus, you subtract. This is terrible math. And yet these religious leaders are saying, no, 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 Jesus, too simple, too basic. You've got to discover the real you. If you just follow these steps, climb the ladder, you will have the nirvana that you truly seek. And it sounds tempting. And so Paul, in verses 18 through 23, is going to just run through some of this religious teaching that the leaders are trying to get the Colossians to follow. In verse 18, Paul says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions about their, by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, which just means the worldly values, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence, also just any indulgence. They lack any value in helping you, really, he's saying, change. You can't actually change. And so there's a lot he's saying there. What he's basically saying is religion is a false door. It can't actually do for you what you want it to do for you because it's built upon you. And these, these religious leaders, they're talking about worshiping angels, meaning they don't think that you have to worship Jesus in order for God to accept you, that you have to also worship angels. So they're adding again to Jesus. And he says they're talking about all these rules. And he, he sums up up and he says basically what they're saying is do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And religion is all about the rules. It's all about the box that you put people in. Don't do this. Don't do that. God won't love you if you do this. God won't accept you if you do this. And Paul says this is how you talk to a child, Right? Don't touch that. Don't put your hand there. Don't think that. It's all about control. Religion is all about control. And Paul says, you died to that way of life. You you no longer have to submit to these rules. You're free. Christ has set you free. You don't have to obey the rules for God to love you. God has loved you. And now you're free to obey the rules because you want to, not because you're forced to. And so he's always trying to help them. No, come back to first things first. Right? Let the gospel power you as you follow God. It's so, so important. And so for us, you may be thinking, well, I don't worship angels. <laughs> so check that off my body. I'm good. I'm good there. Okay. And I don't, really, you know, I don't really see myself maybe as a religious person. And so let me just say that all of us in our hearts have religious religiosity built in because it's natural. All of us at different times in our lives, and maybe more with some people than others, we all will have a bent to say, I think God's really pleased with me or accepted with me if I follow these rules, if I get ahead, if I do this, right? And that's how we think about God. So imagine someone, let's call him religious Ron. And if your name is Ron, 
this is not about you, okay? This is just, this is just one of those pastor, it's the funny phrases put together, okay? That's all it is. So imagine you have religious Ron, and he's a part of a church, kind of, sort of, and he's religious, he's moral, right? He's memorized the Ten Commandments, he's got a few verses he'll, he'll throw out here and there, he attends church somewhat, he's a husband, a father, he's a good person, right? He's a, he's a, good, he's a good guy. He's even, in a guy's, he's even in a guy's small group, okay? Awesome. By any outward appearance, you're thinking, this guy, has, he has it together. He's got it all put together. He's got the groups, he's doing everything they say to do at church. Awesome. I, this, is, this is the guy. And yet, so how, how do you know the difference between someone who by all outward appearances seems like they're a Christian, seems like they're the real deal, and someone who in their heart actually is religious versus being centered on the gospel? Let's look at three areas of Ron's life, right? Fictional Ron. But I think maybe we can see some of ourselves in these areas. So let's look, let's look at religious Ron. Let's look at his prayer life. Let's look at his identity his self-view, his view of himself, and let's look at how he looks about and thinks about other people, okay? So, Ron's prayer life. He does pray. He prays to God, but why does he pray to God? He doesn't pray to God because he loves God. He prays to God because he wants God to bless him. He wants God to help him. He want, if he prays to God, I can actualize the blessings of God in my life, Right? That's religion. You can control God. He doesn't pray to God just because he loves God, because he wants to talk to God. He prays to God so to control his life, to control his circumstances, right? There's no adoration. There's no awe. It's always petition. God, do this. God, do that. And he really prays when things are going south for him, right? That's a religious prayer mindset. When you are praying to God because you want God to do things for you versus praying to God because you love God and you've been loved by God. Those are two different ways to pray. And so Ron then, whenever God doesn't do something for him, he's angry. He's bitter. God, I prayed about this for a year. Why wouldn't you? I thought I did all of these things for you. You can't answer this prayer? Now, he wouldn't say that maybe, but in his heart, that's how he treats God, as if God owes him anything. So that's his prayer life, very religious, very self-centered. Let's look at his identity. It's not built on his worth in God. It's built on how he keeps the rules, how he keeps the law, how he behaves, right? And here's the problem, because this is part of my story. I was an older brother, for sure, still am sometimes an older brother. Keep the rules. God, I mean, I became a pastor. Usually pastors are often older brother types, right? I am just, God loves me because I'm a pastor, right? He just loves me more. And so imagine you have Ron. You have Ron, and he's thinking, I've kept the rules today. I kept almost all the commandments today. It was a good day. I feel righteous. I feel good. Mm. <laughs> but then imagine the next day, he breaks all the commandments. <laughs> and then, instead of saying, I'm thankful that God forgives me, he's just crushed. He says, I failed today. I failed today. Why couldn't I do it today? I know the gospel. Why did I fail? Why can't I keep any of the commandments? And then he just beats himself up. And he, and he just condemns himself because religion condemns you. It's all about condemnation. It's all about how you can. And so though he has great days, he fluctuates. He's up and down all the time. Great days, I follow the commands, I obey God. Terrible days, I fail, I fail, I fail. That's the religious roller coaster that he's on. And all of us can be like that, right? We can all look to things and say, I feel great today. And it's not based on who we are in Christ. It's based on what we've done, right? Religious Ron, he lives in all of us. He does. And so the last one, how does Ron look at other people? How does he view other people? He doesn't view them as equals. He looks down on them. Religious people are very condescending, right? They can be. So imagine the guys in his group are sharing, man, I'm struggling with this. I've got this issue. And Ron is hard as thinking, you just confessed that last week. Why, why haven't you fixed it? Why haven't you got that plank out of your eye? 
I've just got a small, uh, you know, a small speck in my eye. All the, you guys have got all these planks in your eye. What's the deal here? This group is terrible. I'm out of here, you know? Have you ever been in a group with someone like that? Why? Because Ron, his moral standard that he's holding himself to, he's also holding everyone in his life to. And so instead, if you, if you are truly a Christian, when someone confesses sin to you or their struggles to you, you don't say, how could you do that again? You say, but for the grace of God, I'd be there too. And in fact, I've sinned far worse than that. And then you're vulnerable with them because you know you're also a sinner and you're also broken. You're not, oh, well, good thing you're here, <laughs> right? Good thing you're a part of the church. That's why we do this for people like you. Jesus was the most sharp with religious people because they, they like, uh, here's what Paul says. Paul says in verse 23, he says, such regulations, such rule keeping, such morality, it has the appearance of wisdom, right? It seems wise. It seems smart. It seems like, yes, do this, obey this, follow this rule, right? Say as many prayers as you want, right? Do, do all of that. And yet Paul says, it has no value in restraining sensual indulgence, meaning it has no power to change you because it's not changing your heart. It's changing everything else around you. It says change your behavior, change your activity. Religion never says change your heart. It keeps the heart the same and says everything else around you, right, that's the problem. You're not the problem. Everyone else is the problem. And Jesus says, actually, you're the problem. Let's draw a circle around you before we start drawing around other people. And Paul is saying in the Colossians, you cannot get in, a church will die if it becomes based on this. Do not listen to these false teachers. And yet in our hearts, this Ron, he lurks there. He lurks there in all of our hearts because we just, we naturally have a bent to say, I'd just rather achieve than receive. All right? And America only helps that. All right? We want to we make it happen but it's the anti-gospel. And so Paul is just warning them against all of those things. So religious Ron is on one hand. That's one hand. So if you're fueling yourself up, uh, imagine you're at the gas station. You've got 87, 89, 93, right? Yeah, good. You're following me. Awesome. You guys have all filled up gas before. So 87, we've got religion. Here's the first option. But religion will never fill you up. It'll keep, the light will keep coming on. You've got to keep following more rules. Keep doing more. The light will always come on. So what about option number two, 89? What's, how are you going to fill up that way? Let's look at the opposite of religion. It's not talked about in this text, but it's certainly talked about in the Bible, and it's very popular philosophy now, which is, I'll call it irreligion. It's simply the opposite of religion. It's really life without God. I don't need God, right? It, tell me if this sounds familiar. I am the captain of my own ship. I decide what's right for me. Happiness is my goal. It is my God. I don't need God. I just need me. And I just need someone to love me for me, and that's it. And if you get in my way, if you tell me I can't be happy, you don't love me. You don't care about me. Now, that sounds like 2016, right? Irreligion has always been popular. So older brother, religion, irreligion is the younger brother of the prodigal sons. Goes off to a far country to find happiness anywhere but God. So imagine, imagine that we had religious Ron, now we have secular Sarah. Once again. <laughs> Once again, if your name is Sarah, this is not about you. It's just trying to be cute. So please, please let me say that. Um, imagine we have secular Sarah. And again, before you jump off and say, well, I'm not secular. I'm not, right? Are there any even secular people here? Why are we talking about this? One, there are, they are here. And secondly, most of your friends are. 
And so we've got to be thinking how people think, right? We've got to be thinking, how are they thinking about where happiness is found, where they can be filled by things? So we have secular Sarah. And so imagine she grew up in the church, right, heard about God, did the flannel graphs, did Sunday school, did VBS, you know, all that good stuff. But she, she grew up, and then she quit going to church, went to a college. They told her, you can't trust the Bible. She believed them. Why would you even trust the Bible? You know, her parents still go to church. She says in her mind, bless them. How nice. She'll go back for Thanksgiving and Christmas just to, you know, appease them. But it's no longer for her. She no longer cares about such things, right? Now, now what's replaced God for her is now the best resume she can have. Right? I've got to graduate summa cum laude from this college, and if I can do that, then I'll feel good. And she does. She graduates summa cum laude. Graduates from college, has a great, great stuff, get, lines up a great career. And now, what's she going to do? She's going to serve her career. Her career is going to be her everything. And so she gets a high-paying job in a big city. Everything is going well. She's loving it. And next thing she knows, she's working 70, 80 hours a week. But it's everything to her. It is absolutely everything to her. And then what happens? She loses her job. And instead of being upset and sad as you would be, she's absolutely devastated on the point of almost suicide. Why? Because though she wouldn't use this type of language, she was worshiping her job. It was what was filling her tank. People told her, you're doing a great job. You're doing great work. You have value because of what you produce for this company. That's what gives you value. And when she no longer had that value, she was absolutely devastated. See, just because you get rid of God, it doesn't mean you get rid of the hole in your heart that's made for God. That's the big lie of secularism. Everyone has to worship something. Everyone has to think, look to someone and say, will you give me meaning? Will you give me value? Will you give me purpose? So she gets rid of the career and she says, I'm going to find it in a man. Right? She's still maybe a little bit old-fashioned. Okay, career, you know what? That was stupid. Why did I look to that? companies, the man. Yeah, no, I need a tangible man, right? That's what I need. So since she goes on a journey of just trying to date, a date, 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 serial dating, and, and yet she dates multiple men, and the problem is that over a certain period of time, they just keep breaking up with her, or she breaks up with them. And one morning, she wakes up, and there's a guy in the bed next to her, and she even kind of likes this guy. But she wakes up, and she just says, why do I still feel so empty? Why? This person even tells me that he loves me, but I, deep down I just feel like I was made for more than him, more than his love. Where is it? Where can I find it? Aziz Ansari is a comedian. He's not a Christian. Um, he was in, which doesn't mean you can't be a Christian and be a comedian, but he is not one. And um, I want to quote him because it's good to quote non-Christians when they actually put their finger on the problem. And Christians, we can say, yeah, we know, right? It's already in the Word, and yet sometimes it's good to see it. And so he wrote a book called Modern Romance, which is a great take on modern romance. So it's a very descriptive um, title. And uh, <laughs> let, me just, let me just say this. this. This is not a devotional book, okay? This has some language, which is not hallelujah all the way throughout it. So don't, like, if you're going to read it, don't be like, I cannot believe that he... Just don't, okay? It... <laughs> It is good to read, though, beyond some of these things to just see what are people talking about. And so he writes this about marriage and romance of how it used to be and now the weight that we've put on individual people. And it's fascinating. This is from someone who's not a Christian, but I think you'll get what he's talking about. He says, 
Marriage was an economic institution in which you were given a partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now we want our partner to still give us all these things. But in addition, I want you to be my best friend and my trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot. And now we live twice as long. So we come to one person and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging. Give me identity. Give me continuity. But give me transcendence and mystery and awe all in one. Give me comfort. Give me edge. Give me novelty. Give me familiarity. Give me predictability. Give me surprise. And we think it's given. And toys and lingerie are going to save us with that. Now isn't this fascinating? What is he saying? He's saying deep down even though he wouldn't call himself a Christian, somehow we're made to worship. Because, what's he say? We used to look to an entire village. What's the language he uses while he's talking about a human being? I want you to give me belonging and meaning and significance. And I also want you to give me transcendence and awe and mystery. And he says, we used to look to an entire village for that. Yeah, but not really. We used to look to God for that. Because God is the one who truly gives us transcendence and mystery and belonging. You will never, the light will be on your whole life if you look to a person to do for you what only God can do. People are great. Marriage is great. Love is great and wonderful. But when you roll it up to the ultimate thing, the light will come on and you will run out of gas. And you'll wake up every morning and say, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? You may say, okay, R.D., wonderful. But career, no, I don't look at that. I don't look to a man. How dare you? I'm offended you even said that. <laughs> right? I am my own captain. I live for myself. I don't live for other people. I don't live for my job. I'm not defined by that. I'm not defined by romance. I'm living, for, I'm living to be happy. Okay. Fair enough. So let me introduce you to someone else who's also not a Christian. Her name is Elizabeth Gilbert. And she wrote a book called Eat, Pray, Love. You heard of this book? Yep. You seen the movie? Yep. This book is a beating to get through. <laughs> this, I read a lot, and I'm usually, I can always find something great in it, and there's some good things in here, but this book is like a fortune cookie overload of self-helpism. I mean, it is like every cliche you could ever think of rolled into a book, and yet, what does Paul say? It has the appearance of wisdom. To most people, it says that makes perfect sense. Live for you, be happy. And so she has a great marriage or a good marriage. She has a career, she has a house, and she leaves all of that because she's unfulfilled. She's empty. She said, I can't find a man, I can't find in my career, I, can't, I gotta go discover the world for myself and travel. And travel. So she goes to Italy, India, and Indonesia, eat, pray, love, to find herself, to find happiness, to finally be filled. At the end of the book, here's what she writes about what she found about happiness. She writes, <clears throat> happiness is the consequence of personal effort. You fight for it, strive for it, insist upon it, and sometimes even travel around the world looking for it. And once you've achieved a state of happiness, you must never become lax about maintaining it. You must make a mighty effort to keep swimming upwards into that happiness forever, to stay afloat on top of it. Right? Happiness is the goal. You've got to fight for it, strive for it, make it happen. Don't ever let go of it. And then at the end of the book, she wrote, she wrote this. I remember reading the book. And I remember underlying this line, I thought, I'm going to use this in a sermon one day. I don't know when, but I know it's going to happen. <laughs> Today is that day. 
Today is that day. Five years later, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. It was underlined in there. And I was like, someday. And so this week I was like, I know, I know. And so I found the book and I was like, there it is. And so at the end of the book, she did fall in love again. You know, true love, real love this time. And she had found herself. And at the end of the book, she said, but I don't want you to think that this is a fairy tale. I didn't just do a, you know, a full circle and come back to where I started. And she writes this at the end of the book. She says, I was not rescued by a prince. I was the administrator of my own rescue. Me. And I would say simply maybe, but that rescue is short term. Because guess what? You're going to need a, a life jacket again. The light's going to come on again. It will. It will. Because this, this idea of happiness, which is so prevalent in our culture, just her language is you've, your personal effort has to make it happen. You've got to achieve it. How, what pressure does that put on people to be happy, to maintain happiness? Here are the steps, and if you can't do them, there's something wrong with you. Why are you upset? Why are you depressed? Why don't you just want to be happy? Here are the books. Travel the world. Do the, eat the right food. You just need to be happy in yourself. And yet for so many people, we can't just be happy like that. Why? Because happiness is not the goal. Right? Happiness is not the result of personal achievement. Happiness is a byproduct of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And so the world says happiness is the goal. The Bible says it can't be the goal because that becomes all about you. And so the Bible says neither religion, the older brother, or irreligion, the younger brother, is where you can be filled. You need someone different from religion who says, I don't love you because of how well you obey me. I love you because I love you. I love you because of what I've done for you. And also, you don't, you don't need a philosophy which says we've got to just seek and seek and seek our whole life and never know. Jesus Christ says, I came to find you. You don't have to find me. And so the Bible says it's neither religion nor irreligion, but behind, you know, door number three, 87, 89, 93, there stands Jesus Christ, the only one who can make us full, the only one who can turn the light off forever. It's only him. And Paul, Paul says that in Colossians 2 here in verses 9 through 10. He lays it out so clearly. He says in verse 9, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity, God himself, lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. The fullness you seek, the fullness you're made for. You've been brought that fullness by a relationship with Jesus Christ because all the fullness of God that you looked for in a person or in a career or in drugs or in alcohol, whatever it is to just feel okay, that's actually in a person called Jesus Christ. And if you know him, you can be filled at last and be, you can just exhale. You don't have to then go and look other places to find your fullness, to find, to find Life. Paul says, you have been brought to fullness. And here, here's how. How have we been brought to fullness? The Bible says that you do not fill yourself up in your own power. You don't pull the gas out and say, okay, I'm going to fill myself up with some God now. I mean, in a sense, you do. But first, God has to fill you up with himself. He has to make the first move. And thankfully, he does. Verse 11, Paul says, in him, in Jesus, you also were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh, meaning just your natural self, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13 is central. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us 
all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And so here we have this beautiful section where Paul says, do you know how you're made full? Do you know how you're brought to fullness? Through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when you were completely empty and at your worst, Jesus Christ made you alive. He made you alive. And because he did that, if you know that in your heart, you will remain full. You will remain filled. Right, that's the beauty, that Jesus sees us as we truly are and still loves us. Let me illustrate it this way. When my wife and I were dating uh, about nine months in, I, we'd yet to drop the L-bomb yet, which is love, the love bomb, okay. <clears throat> and uh, we're waiting for the right time. You know, we're in our mid-20s, mid-late-20s, and, you know, just thinking, I'm pretty sure, I mean, no, at that point she's the one, and so she gets mono, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is like, now I'm delaying so many things. You know, at first I was like, Mono, come on. You know, this is unbelievable. And all thinking about myself, right? Just unbelievable. And so she just gets so sick because Mono actually is really serious. And my wife is five foot nothing. And so she just like, um, it just wrecks her. It just absolutely wrecks her. And so I go over and visit her at her apartment. And I bring her, you know, just tons of Kleenex. And we watch movies together. I bring her books. I bring her medicine. I bring her just food, whatever. I just text her, hey, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? You know, and she was just really looked like a shell of herself. And she said the same thing, right? She lost weight. She was in sweatpants all the time. She couldn't go to work. It was just like, it was just really, really rough. And about three months into just that sickness and me just kind of caring for her and just doing that, you know, for her, we're on like the, the how we got on the floor in her apartment. And she's just weeping again. She's like, I, sorry, you have to see me this way. I wish we could go out on dates and I just can't do anything for you. You know, and that's a terrible impression of my wife. But that, you get the point, right? She's emotional. <laughs> She doesn't have a deep man voice, okay? <laughs> Just so we're clear. Just so everyone's clear. Um, but, you know, she's just emotional because just naturally, you know, like when someone takes care of you, you just, you don't always like it. You want to take care of other people, you know, because you feel like that's just going to help. And so we're sitting there and she's bawling again and, and I just look at her and I say, for the first time, I say, Emily, I love you. I love you. And she said, she said, now? <laughs> you know, in her mind, she thought, I saw this, I saw a different, like, I saw a different moment right now. This is not, and she's trying to like, you know, do her hair real fast. We're like, no, not now, not, not now. And she started crying and I'm like, was that not the right, I thought this would, you know, and so all of this. And, and she just said like, but look at me, like, look at me. And I'm, I stay, I can't do anything for you. I'm just helpless and I'm whole, I just, like, you love me now? And I said, yes, I love you right now. And Paul says, that's what the love of Jesus Christ is like. Jesus Christ saw us when we were on the floor in our sweatpants, <laughs> weeping, exposed, vulnerable, naked, lonely, and even more than that, an enemy of his. Not just innocent, but actually guilty. And in that moment, Paul says, Jesus Christ loved you to life. And there's no other religion that says that. There's no other philosophy that says that. It's only in the heart of the gospel, in the heart of God, our Father, where he says, I love you into life. And you know what Emily said to me? She still says this to me. We've been married now, you know, five years. And that was even before we got married. She says, you know, I, still, I love our wedding day. That was obviously promises and vows, but I'll always go back to that day 
when you saw me at my absolute worst and you said, I love you. And the confidence that I still have from that moment is powering me through. Don't you see? My love for her is, I could only say that because I knew that's just how God loves me. That's only how God loves me, I could love you that way. And only if we, fee- if we receive that love, the love that God has for us, could we love other people like that? Could we even love ourselves like that? The key word here in verse 13 is the timing of it. When? When does God love us? At our utter worst. He sees us as we are, and he still loves us. And if that truth goes into your heart, if you keep running to that Father, to that Christ, you will be filled. You will remain full. But here's the deal. We know still, we know because we're just human, and the world is still filled with sin, that the light's still going to come on right? It's going to come on maybe even tomorrow, Monday. You're going to think, man, that was a good message. I'm going to just be feeling and tomorrow morning. Something's going to happen, a coworker, a kid. Just You're like, oh, darn it. You know, all this is, you know, it's just the light's going to come on. You're going to be just feeling like, ah, and you're going to maybe want to run to just, I got to just know I'm feeling bad because I'm not being a good person. That's religion. Or you're going to feel like, you know what, forget all of this. And I'm just going to go do whatever I want today. You know, darn it. I deserve it. All right. And that's your religion. And Paul says, you can't do that. You cannot do that. You've got to remain rooted in Christ. And that's what Paul says in verses 6 and 7 here. He says, so then, really, because you've received the gospel, because you've received this gospel, he says, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Just as you receive the truth that when you were dead, Christ made you alive. Stay in that. Remain in that. Don't move away from that. That is everything. It's all that you need. It will keep you full. It will keep you filled. But even when you forget it, even when we have amnesia, because we always do. Paul says, keep coming back to it. Keep coming back to the vine. Come back to the tree. Come back to him. He's always there for you to return to him again and again and again, because all of us are prodigals, either older brothers and sisters or younger brothers and sisters. And our God says, you can come home. You, all of you can come home, but remain rooted. And he throws in there at the end that all of us would be overflowing with thankfulness. That may seem odd. Why does he say that? Why does he connect thankfulness with remaining rooted and abiding in Christ? Think of how do you feel after you have um, Thanksgiving meal? Full. <laughs> right? You feel filled. Does anyone in here, right after they have Thanksgiving meal, 20 minutes later say, I want to go to McDonald's? <laughs> That's right. I know what? I need a Big Mac right now. I'm ready for that. Who says that? Right? If you say that, we need to have you up here and we need to pray for you because <laughs> I'm really concerned. <laughs> that would be really concerning. And no one says that. Why? Because you're filled and you're full. And when you're filled and full, you don't go other places to try and find food that won't satisfy you. And Paul says, thankfulness is the great antidote to entitlement. It's the great guard against you thinking God owes you anything in your life. A Christian looks at his or her life and says, everything is a gift. I'm in awe of who God is. A religious person says, I deserve it. I should get it. We want to try and control God. And you... A Christian marvels at their conversion. They marvel at who God's made them to be. Everything is a gift. And so thankfulness is the food that we have to eat to push back us from going down the road of religion or irreligion. Be thankful for everything God has given you. Remain rooted in him. Continue him. Because the light's going to come on. You're going to have hard weeks. You're going to forget. All of us are going to forget. We're going to just forget. And Jesus says, I'm going to forgive you, but come home. Come back. Come back when the light comes on. Do you know where you can come back to? Remember my love for you. 
C.S. Lewis says, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. And that's the heartbeat of Christianity. So wherever you are, younger brother, older brother, younger sister, older sister for the parable, maybe somewhere in the middle, right? The younger brother, irreligion, he runs away from his father. He says, I can find happiness and fulfillment outside of you. I can find it in women. I can find it in alcohol. I can find it in the right job. And he wakes up every single morning and he's empty. He's empty. He's empty, right? The tank maybe goes, it fills up a little bit, but then he wakes up and eventually it hits him again. I, this is not it. And so he finally wakes up to the reality that he has a father who loves him and he goes home. And then there's the older brother, the religious one, who lives, in all of our, who lives in all of our hearts, and he is always upset. He's upset because when the younger son comes back, what does he say? He doesn't say, this is amazing. He says, how could you celebrate for such a sinner? I've kept all the rules. I've done everything. I am above reproach. Dad, how could you do this? And what does the father do? The father goes outside of the house and says to the older son, come in. Come home. You're far from my heart. I don't care about you following all the rules if you do it for the complete wrong reason. It's not about that. It's about the relationship that you and I have. I want you to come home just like your younger brother has come home. And here's the great truth that the way we know that the father can accept both of his sons is only because there's a third son and his name is Jesus Christ, right? And he left his home so that we could get home. And because he did, because he fully obeyed the Father, he fulfills all of the deeds that we would ever have to do. And he shows us that life is only found in him. And because Jesus Christ on the cross emptied himself, he was no longer filled. He emptied himself of everything for you and I. Why? John 10, 10. So that you and I would have life and have it to the full. And that's the good news of the gospel. Stay rooted in that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you tell all of us, older brothers, older sisters, younger brothers, younger sisters, come home. There is always food ready for you. But we can't just come home unless someone pays the price for all that we've done. And we're thankful there's a third son, Jesus Christ, who left his home, left your side, so that you could become a father for the fatherless. Father, I'm thankful on this Father's Day that all of us here, whether we had an earthly father or not, even the best ones are only shadows of you. And if we didn't have one, we can have one in you. Father, help us not run towards other things. Help us not beat our chest in saying we are right because we obey or that we are filled because of things in our life. But only through you can we find fullness. Can we be filled? Can we find our way home? Father, we thank you that your son came to give us life and life for the full. And that when we are in our sweatpants on the floor, <laughs> running away from you, you were bleeding for us. Yes. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen.